While you're standing, if you will go with me to the book of Romans, the first chapter. I'll start reading in verse number one. Romans chapter one, verse one. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated into the gospel of God, which he had promised before by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to faith among all nations for his name, among whom are you also the called of Jesus Christ. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. For a few moments tonight, I want to speak to you about called. The Lord bless you. you may be seated. Brother Clyde T., thank you. You always get the right songs. That's not an accident. That lets me know he prayed. <laughs> Some places I go to speak, I have no clue where I'm at or where I'm going because the songs are not even close to what I need to talk about. And it's refreshing to be able to step here and know that somebody else heard from God too. I've thought about my dad over the last few days, particularly today. My dad, to me, is one of the greatest men who ever lived. He was the greatest father that ever lived. I'm a little biased, but I think I can prove it. When I think of dad, it gives me such an incredible picture of Jesus. Not because I'm comparing him to Jesus, but he becoming the father he was in my life, he made it real easy for me to trust Jesus. My memories of dad as a child was this man who had incredibly large hands. But those hands never hurt me. Oh, he spanked me a few times in my life, not very many. I think only two that I can remember. But he was such a gentle giant. He had incredible strength. He took a 16-pound sledgehammer and cut the handle off. So it was only about 12 inches long because he used it in his business. He had a machine that he used to straighten the frames of vehicles that had been in car wrecks. And he had three different locations he would put um, pumps on or uh, hydraulic pumps that he could use to move them. And once he got them straightened back to where they should be, he would take that 16-pound sledgehammer and he would hit the spot where it was bent really, really hard. Preacher asked him one day, why do you do that? 
And his response was, if I don't, when I turn it loose, it'll move back to where it was. But if I hit it hard enough, I'll relieve the stress and it'll stay where I have it at. He could use that thing one-handed. But I don't ever remember Dad hurting me. I don't remember those hands causing me any kind of conflict. I remember those hands being incredibly gentle. I remember those hands holding books as a kid because we didn't have a television. Radios weren't anything important at that time. So in the evening time after we had had our meal and it got dark, Dad would sit down with a book and he would read to us stories. It started when I was very young. Those are my earliest memories. And he would read until uh, we needed to go to sleep. We'd beg him to keep reading because he had this incredible voice and he could just read. His mother was a school teacher and he enjoyed reading. Those hands were always comforting. When I listened to Pentecostals talk and people who called themselves children of God, their description of life often implies that they serve a God that's really mean. God is not mean. He's not unkind. He's not hurtful. I remember when we lost our child coming to church that Sunday morning after the funeral on Wednesday. And I remember being met in the vestibule of the church on Broadway and I remember a lady walking up to me and saying to me, Brother Hughes, God just needed another rose in heaven. I'm so sorry for your loss. Why would God hurt me to have flowers? Why would God punish me to have something beautiful in heaven. My Bible says that he can speak and things happen. He didn't need my child to create beauty. He knows how to do that. See, my father that I serve is the greatest father in all the world. He's loving, he's kind, he's gentle. He's never hurt or injured his children. He's always looking out for our best. Now do you understand why you sang the songs you sang tonight? He's always looking out for my good. There's not a day that, that I arise that he's not looking out for me. There's not a moment in my life he's not concerned about me. I never hear him say things like, I told you so. If you'd listen to me, this wouldn't happen. I knew you'd do that. You're just a mistake. I wish you weren't born. I hate you. You're really, really dumb. Some of you have heard those words. And some of you have heard them from dad. And as a result, you have a very difficult time understanding God the way God wants to be understood. See, God loves us unconditionally. God loves me in spite of my failures and my faults. I, I don't have to achieve a certain level for God to bless me or care about me. God loves me in spite of some of the dumb things I do in my life. 
It's in our nature as human beings to say things that are hurtful to other people. I don't know why that we have this really difficult time not letting people know. If they'd have listened, it wouldn't have taken place or they wouldn't be in the condition there. If they'd just paid attention and I, I, I tried to warn you. So we, we have to say those things. But nobody in this room has ever heard God say, if you listen to me, this wouldn't have happened. I told you so. Because he's not mean. The Apostle Paul writing to a church he had never attended. He didn't know these people. The way he found out about them was he met a couple by the name of Aquila and Priscilla. And they were at Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and got the Holy Ghost. And when they went back to their home in Rome, they started preaching the gospel in Rome. And there were many converts that took place in Rome. Peter wasn't the first preacher that wound up in Rome. It was some of those who were in Jerusalem, those 3,000 that received the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost. Those are the people who, who went back to the cities they were from and began to preach the gospel and things began to happen. And so he met this family by the name of Aquila and Priscilla and he, he began to hear about these, the Christians in Rome. And so he, he wants to go there. His desire is that, that he could affect them as well because others had. And so he starts writing to them and, and he pins some incredible words to these people. First, he starts by saying, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle called, invited to be an apostle. When I started really digging into the word apostle, I discovered some interesting facts about it. The word actually is a word in its original form that wasn't really a pleasant word to even talk about because in, in its older form, it was a nautical term used to denote a freighter or a ship or naval force that had no sense of authorization or direction. As time went on, its, its meaning changed, but it was always about the sea and, the, and ships. Israel never had an army or a navy that, that they sent across the Mediterranean Sea. They, they never left the country God's gave them. So it's a term that they're not comfortable with and they don't even recognize. And 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 Paul in writing, he, he's he's heard about this term and he studied it and he understands how it all came about and and he begins to use it. If you check out the ministry of Jesus, you'll discover that there is only one recording of Jesus calling those 12 men apostles. Only one. And it's not by Matthew, Mark, Luke, or, or Matthew, Mark, or John. Luke is the one who uses it. In Matthew, it's used once or twice, and, and Mark and John only once. But Luke and Paul use it some 80 times 
It's a term that Luke was comfortable with as he describes the relationship that Paul had with Jesus Christ. Just observing his reactions and his lifestyle, he, he, he saw in Paul a very unique characteristic. Paul was often called a zealot, but he was not really a zealot according to their idea because he wasn't he, he didn't put people to death that didn't believe like him. But that's what zealots did. He, he saw in him this incredible gentleness. And maybe Luke introduced Paul to this term. I don't know. There's no way of proving where it came from or who used it first. Because you really can't pinpoint which was written first. Whether the book of Gospel of Luke or, or the book of Acts or are Paul's writing. We don't know. There's no way of knowing that. But there's an influence between these two because they're companions. Paul calls Luke the great and glorious physician. He was impressed with this Gentile that had heard about Jesus and, and wanted to invest his life in Jesus Christ. What gave him that desire? Meeting Paul. And Paul's influence upon his life. What gave me the desire to meet Jesus and to be close to him was a man by the name of Egbert Hughes. Because he showed me what a loving father really is. And what loving fathers do for their children. And how he treats them. And so it's, it's Luke who hears this incredible story that Jesus told that the other writers don't seem to think is important and they leave it out. It's not even mentioned or referenced in any of their writings. Matthew doesn't record it, Mark doesn't, John doesn't. It's only in the Gospel of Luke that we find this incredible story that we give the wrong name to. We always look at the negative issues of life instead of really looking for the real meaning of what the story is really all about. It's a story in the middle of, of lost things. It begins by a shepherd losing a sheep, one out of a hundred. That's only one percent. But he wasn't willing to let one percent go. And he searched until... He found the sheep. Sheep have no sense of direction. They're not like cattle or horses that, that if you leave them somewhere, they can find their way back to the stall where their food's at. They always find their way home. A sheep, if it's not led back to where it belongs, has no sense of direction. And if it ever recognizes it's lost, it panics and starts running and often runs off of cliffs or, or into things that destroy it as a result of the panic because it doesn't know how to find its way home. So the first thing lost is lost because it has no sense of direction or where it should be. It's lost by nature. The second lost thing is one of ten coins that 
a lady had. It was her dowry. And it was lost in the house. The only way that that coin could be lost in the house was for the lady of that house not to keep the house very well. Their floors weren't made out of wood. They were dirt. So if a coin fell and it landed in the dirt, then the dust could cover it quickly and it would be lost. How did she find the the, the coin? She got a broom and she swept the dirt out and in the process of getting the house clean, she found her coin and rejoiced over it. Now that's 10%. That's lost by neglect not thinking about or paying attention and and losing the the importance of people and why they're important. But that third thing is a certain man had two sons. And we want to call this story the story of the prodigal son when in reality it's the story of the perfect father. It's not a story about a kid who gets lost and, and, and has no sense of value and throws things away. It's an entitled child that thinks he has the right to demand his inheritance. Kind of sound like today? You owe me this. So he goes to dad and says to dad, give me my inheritance. Why? Because he knew he only got one-third of the inheritance. The oldest brother got two-thirds. If there were ten kids, the oldest one still got two-thirds, and the rest of them divided one-third of the inheritance. He knew that he didn't get a whole lot out of it, and apparently... Maybe he was jealous. I don't know. We can't read into the story things Jesus didn't put there. But I can definitely identify what he did put there. Because when the child gets his inheritance, and notice, he gave to them his inheritance. Not him, them. He divided to both of them at that day their inheritance. Now, that dad knew what the son was going to do with that money. When Anthony was about nine or ten years of age, we went to visit his grandmother right before his birthday, and she gave him a check for his birthday. So we get in the car, start to back out of the driveway of her home, driving across town. She lived on the north side of Houston, and driving back to where we lived on the south side, we, I, I back out, I don't even get into the street. And I hear from the back seat this voice say, Dad, can you take me by the bank? I want to cash my check. Well, Dad, knowing the voice in the back seat says, Anthony, that's not a good idea. If you cash that check, You're going to spend it. If you'll just hold on to it for a few days, 
I'm sure there are other members of the family that are going to give you some things, and you probably will get a lot more money in just another couple of days. So if you will just hold on to it and get more, you can, you can get something bigger. And it was silent for just a few moments, not long. From the back seat comes the voice, Dad, whose birthday is this? So dad never said another word. He just put the car in drive and it took us about 35 minutes to get home and I pulled up in the driveway on Sagecrest and opened the door or told his mother and sister, you guys can get out. I will go cash his check and I know what he wants to do. And so pulled out of my driveway, drove to the end, turned right, went about a mile and a half, turned right second time, Went to about another mile, turned right, pulled in the parking lot of this store, and and I said, now, Anthony, you have about 15 minutes to go get what you want. If you don't, you will walk home. I'm going to wait for you right here. Go get what you want. He gets out, goes in the store. Now, I didn't ask him where he wanted to go. Why? Because I'd been here too many times. I knew where he was going to go, and I knew what he was going to do. That father knew exactly what the boy was about to do. But he also understood that if he didn't let that boy go, he would remain a child all his life. So he had to take his hands off and let the boy leave home so that a man would return. And he took his hands off. And the boy left. He gets to a foreign country. And the scripture says, Luke describes it in quite great detail. And he wasted his substance on riotous living. Now that just sounds nasty, doesn't it? Riotous living. He must have just was a party animal. But that's not what Jesus said. The word he used, or the word Luke uses to describe what Luke heard, is that he wasted his money on extravagance. He bought the best horse. He lived at the best house. He ate the best food. Where do you think he learned how to do that? He was just living away from home the way he had lived at home. Then a famine came. Their money was based upon crops, not gold. They didn't have a gold standard. They had a crop standard. So when a famine shows up, his money became worthless. Now he has no money. So he winds up in a pig pen Feeding pigs. Now, I, I went to college, Bible college, with a friend, a man who became my friend, and we actually went back to his home and visited him there. and And he came from Illinois, and and they were the proud owners of this large farm that raised prize hogs. The hogs they raised, their feet never touched the ground. 
they had an automated system that kept the place clean and, and washed. And, but it didn't matter how automated it was. That was the stinkingest place I have ever been in in my life. When I returned from that barn where all those pigs were at, that lady right there wouldn't even let me in the house. I had to change clothes in the garage. And I, we didn't even bring them home. You couldn't get the odor out. Now he's in this place where there's nothing but but an odor that, that's offensive and, and he's here where this, that he's feeding these animals and, and he, he just wish he could eat the same food they were eating. And then revelation showed up. He remembered at dad's house how dad treated people. And he, makes a statement. I'm going to go home and I'm going to tell dad I've sinned against you and I've sinned against heaven and I don't deserve to be your child anymore. Would you just hire me as a servant? That's all I ask. He starts home and Luke says, that he saw him where? A long way off. And when he saw him, what did he do? He ran, fell on his neck, and kissed him. Let, let me describe it in the detail Luke described it in. Luke Translate or says that racing with all his might, he launched himself at him and he covered him with kisses. Now, we would have probably stopped and said, Oh, son, you need to change clothes. You stink. He didn't just walk through the place. He wallowed in the place. But dad never addressed his appearance. He covered him. We've created songs that really irritate God because it makes it appear that he really is difficult to approach. And there's things said like he don't give up easy. No, he don't give up at all. He will never abandon you. If you get lost, you're the one who's going to abandon him. He's not going to abandon you. And, and the, the lady, or the, the prophet of Tekoa, the lady of Tekoa comes to David and said, and tells this story and, and she makes this statement that God devises means that his banish be not estranged from him. 
the literal translation said, God blazes trails. So when the lost discover they're lost and they turn around, they'll find the way right back home because there's a trail being blazed to where they're at. If you do wind up in hell, you'll never be able to point your finger at God and say, you didn't try hard enough. You didn't know where I lived. You didn't know the conditions I lived in. You, you didn't understand my life or what was happening in my life. We will never be able to say that because he makes sure that if I ever come to myself and turn around, there's a way home. Now, when the boy got home and he starts repenting, he says to dad, I've sinned against you and I've sinned against heaven. I don't deserve to be your son. Dad stopped him at that moment. He did not let him humiliate himself and say, I'll be a servant. He only let him repent. And when he had repented, he says to the servant, put a ring on his finger. Put a robe on his back. Put some shoes on his feet. Now, where are they at? Where are they at? Are they at the house? No, where are they? A long way off. How did that servant know to take a ring, a robe, and shoes? There is only one way that could have happened. There was a dress rehearsal on a daily basis because dad knew the boy was coming home. And he was just always looking for him to get home. And the instant he saw him, he started running. That servant had been trained. The instant you see me leave and run, you better have a robe in your hand, you better have some shoes in your hand, and you better have a ring in your hand because when you get to where my son's at, He has got to know that he still belongs to me because the robe was the family name, so he put the robe back on him. The ring was the authority of the family to represent the family in any kind of business decision, but shoes, sandals on his feet was to let everybody else at that house know this is not a servant, this is my son. Then he said, Go kill the fatted calf. In the Greek language, the indefinite article, or the definite article, the, is much more powerful than ours. The word the, tos to toton, that word the in the Greek language literally translates the one and only fatted calf. There wasn't two calves in that pen. There was one. How long does it take to fatten a calf? Twelve to eighteen months. Usually it's around eighteen months if you want it big enough that you can get the most meat off of. When did the calf wind up in the pen? The day he left home. You say, you can't prove that. Well, maybe you ought to redress the story. 
When an older brother walks in, what does he do? He gets mad. Why? The pen's empty. He won't even come in the house. He is so mad, he stays outside, and a servant comes out and finds this spoiled brat sulking because there's an empty pen. And, and, and he starts in, interrogating him. What, what's happening? He heard the sound, the music. He, he knew what was going on in the house. Let me back up a moment. When they killed the fatted calf, according to some of the writers of the first and second century, that calf was killed at the front door of that house because they're Jewish. And that is a sacrifice for sin. So when they invited the guest, everybody that walked in that door had to walk through the blood to get in the house. So everybody that came got the same repentance or remission or forgiveness as the boy did that. What Jesus said about people who come back home? What do you say about a soul that's saved? What happens in heaven? There's all kinds of rejoicing takes place. Why? Because somebody discovered who he was and how great a dad he really is. Older brother's mad. He's angry. He's irritated. He don't even go in the house because that boy, he knew what he'd done. And notice what, when dad comes out, the servant goes in, tells dad, the brat's outside, he's, he's sulking, he, he, he won't come in, he's not going to join this thing because he's mad at you. You killed the calf. And so dad walks outside, and he starts a conversation with son, and, and son then starts attacking dad. And son says to dad, your son wasted all your money on harlots. And that's where we preach the prodigal son as being evil. And Jesus never said he was. We take the accusations of an older brother as fact when the fact is it was not factual. When Luke describes the older brother coming in, he said he came in out of the field. The literal translation says he came in out of the world. One was lost at home, one was lost away from home. What does dad say to son? The son says, that, that son, he, he wouldn't even call him brother. Your, your son wasted all your money on, on all this junk, and, and I've lived at your house all my life, and I've never violated one of your laws. Now, there's not a child alive can make that statement without lying. Matter of fact, there's nobody in this room can use the word never without lying. It's one of the exaggerating terms that we use. You never take me out to eat. If I do it one time, you can't say never. <laughs> he didn't stop him. He didn't say, wait a minute, son. You, you know you, you're not going to do that. He just said, son. This was yours. 
You could have killed this calf anytime you wanted it. Now, I'm going to get in a lot of trouble tonight. <laughs> Can I challenge you to think? How did two boys grow up in the same house with this guy who's so incredibly generous and have no clue who he is? How'd that happen? How did these two children who grew up with this man that's, he's not mean, he's not vindictive, he's not vicious. Matter of fact, a lot of scholars believe that, that this illustration is actually two churches, a Gentile church and a Jewish church, and the Father is represented by Jesus Christ. If that's the case, how is it that two kids grow up in the same house and have absolutely no clue what kind of dad they're living with. The youngest one thought he'd never please him. The oldest one, he just didn't care. He thought it all belonged to him. How, how'd that happen? The problem is, there's somebody not mentioned in the story. And here's where the problem resides. Every man in this room gets his sense of who he is, his worth, his value, his dignity, his self-esteem doesn't come from his father. It comes from his mother. Because God never intended for a man to be attached to a man. So a man can't make a man out of his son. Only mom can do that. So it's mom's approval, mom's recognition, mom's love, mom's affection that develops that young man into a healthy male who will not attack, belittle, or use females because he was raised with the right kind of input in his life. Hope y'all not too mad at me. <laughs> what happened? Well, in Jesus' day, women were considered worthless. They were objects owned by men. She had no rights. So instead of teaching the value system of her husband to her children, she taught the value system of her father to her children. Her father had made her feel worthless. Her father had made her feel as if she had no value. She could never do anything right. She'd never be successful. Her father had taught her that you're basically just something somebody's going to throw away because you'll never be good enough. So when those boys needed somebody to validate them, there was no one there to let them know who they are, how valuable they are, how important they are. If he's father, 
And this is mother. If we don't fall in love with him and understand him and become the word apostle, the closest word in our language today that would would be able to be translated apostle is an ambassador. If we don't become ambassadors of Jesus Christ and we don't through our lives show our world how much God loves us and what kind of father he really is and that that I don't have to perform to get his approval. It, 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 I can't do enough for him to give me approval. He gives me approval because he's the greatest father in all the world. And in spite of my mistakes, he makes a way for me to correct them and fix my life to have a better life. See, at this house, he doesn't throw away children that maybe mess up. He gives them a way to correct their life and fix their lives and, and get their lives back in order. And we sometimes can be really harsh on people who mess up occasionally. Unfortunately, we have been guilty of preaching a perfectionistic gospel that says everybody has to be perfect. And there's no truth to that. God's not expecting perfection out of any of us. He's expecting perfection out of His church. The body, together, all of us, individually. He doesn't expect me to live my life without making mistakes. The psalmist said, he remembered they were but flesh. God's not shocked at your humanity. He provides a way. For you to have your life back and to get back whatever life may have stolen from you. The boy didn't get one penny in inheritance for the rest of his life. But he got to live at that house with a name on his life. and a ro- He got to become part of the family even though he had lost all the money. Our world's taught us to pay more attention to our money than our kids. And we become more focused on our what we collect and what we accumulate than, than affecting our children and making sure they understand how valuable they are and how important they are. See, when I look at God and I pray, I, I don't see a God with arms pushing or sho- shoving or, or telling me that, that he don't want me. One of my friends told me his story several years ago after I first started doing this. He said, Brother Hughes, you, you don't understand how what you're saying really affects, how, how it affects people. He said, I, I grew up with a dad who doesn't know how to love anybody. If I walk in his house at Thanksgiving or Christmas or Summertime for vacation because he lives in a different city and we have to intentionally go there to visit. As he, as I walk up, his instant reflex is he brings his arms up and he crosses them across his chest because he knows I'm going to try to hug him. And when I start to reach out to hug him, he starts pushing and he pushes me away and he says, son, 
You don't understand. I had a mean dad. He said, before I leave, I'm going to try it again. He said, I've been doing this all my life. He was 40-something years of age at the time. He said, just happened a few months ago. He said, here's, here's the problem that causes me. When I get down to pray, I have to work real hard at not seeing God with arms crossed and pushing me away and, and not letting me get close to him because of the image that I have of what dad is. I'm incredibly blessed because I don't have that image in my life. When I, I think about my dad, I, there, there's, there's no bad thoughts there. There's only good thoughts. Because he never, never made me feel unimportant. It didn't matter who was at my house or who was visiting or where we were at and who was present. If I ever walked in the room and called his name and said, Dad, he would say to whoever is present, hold on a minute, my son needs to ask me a question. Because he was raised with this idea that kids are to be seen and not heard. And he refused to raise his kids in that environment where they would only be seen without a voice. So when I come to God, I, I don't ever see him not wanting me around. And that's what Paul's trying to address to the Romans. We, we serve a father that has called us. He's invited us to become ambassadors of him. And as an ambassador, an apostle to the world that I live in, as an ambassador, I need to show the world that I live in what kind of father really loves me and how I relate to him. I don't see him as being vindictive. He, he's not punishing me with, yes, I have had lots of accidents and been in the hospital too many times. And I, I've heard my friend say to my wife while I was coming out of anesthesia, that James's guardian angel would like a reassignment. And I've heard others say he's just an accident looking for a place to happen. That's a lie. My dad never said those things to me. We better be careful how we portray Jesus. Because I can tell you, he's tired of it. I was standing in a singles conference not long ago. The music was so loud I couldn't hear anything. But the words were on the screen. And I'm looking at the words and reading them as they're singing and they're talking about, I'd crawl through a hot burning desert just to get to you. And God spoke to me and said, I am tired of my children making me look like I'm not the right kind of father and that it's hard to reach me and hard to find me and hard to get to me and I'm difficult to live with and I'm difficult to be around and they're going to have to crawl through some hot burning desert to get to me? I turned to the preacher beside me who was about to preach. I said, if you don't go take this service over right now, it's over. He said, I've been feeling that. Are you sure? I said, do it. And he walked the platform and took it over and changed the whole atmosphere because they were leading us places God is tired of. 
We're his kids. We're his ambassadors. What are we showing the world? He's hard to get along with. He's hard to live with. He's hard to understand. You, you can't ever please him or satisfy him. He's never happy with anything that I do. See, God's kids look like they eat lemons for breakfast, limes for lunch, grapefruits for supper. We've lost the ability to laugh and enjoy life, and, and that's not what God desires. Where I'm an ambassador for another country, and I've been in his presence, and I know that his greatest desire is that I enjoy everything that he's created me to become. When I talk about Jesus, do I make people want to be in his presence? Or are they terrified of him? See, we've been guilty of terrorizing people to get them to an altar. We've used so much fear and guilt to try to control people. That's not what he's looking for. He's the greatest father in all the world. There's none like him. He loves me unconditionally. And I get to let my world know how great he is and how good he is. And he's been nothing but good to me. He's been nothing but kind to me. He's been nothing but long-suffering with me. In, in my biggest mistakes, he doesn't rub my nose in it and make me feel worthless. He says, come to my altar, son, repent. I'll give you my blood. You can erase that part of life, and there won't ever be a record of that part of your life anymore. So there's no Satan can go drag up what you did. It's covered by my blood. Here, come to my altar. I got a remedy for all these things. Use my blood to erase this record. Blot it out so that you're never, never, never going to be judged by this again See, that's the dad I serve the dad I serve is the greatest father in all the world and, and if I, I, I get distracted and decide to leave and the day of revelation shows up and I start home he's going to meet me where I'm at with a robe with a ring with sandals. I get the authority of the name of the family back. I, I can still pray in that name. I can cast out the, I can lay hands on the sick and they'll recover. I, I still get the authority of using that name again. I get to wear that name in a robe and that robe is called the spirit of holiness. If you notice that was part of what I read to you today. See that the the term translated in the scripture in the New Testament, the, the the translators know they should reverse the way they translate it, and because it helps them try to explain their ideas about God, which is not in the scripture, and they speak about the Holy Ghost, when in reality the literal translation is the Spirit of the One and Only Holiness. The Spirit of Holiness is what affects my life and changes my life. And it's not the third person of a trinity. It's the nature of God. God is holy. And his holiness is what he allows me to be robed with. And I, I get to put on his righteousness. It's not mine. It's his. 
I get to wear a robe that he created for me that is has his name on it. And when I put it on, then people really see what he's all about. Please stand. Gracious Father, thank you today for your incredible word. Thank you, Jesus, for making sure that every resource we would ever need to be able to exist in this life, you provided. You made sure that you covered every aspect of life. There's nothing in my life that I could encounter that your word does not address. It is a lamp unto my feet. It is the light unto my pathway. If I hide its word in my heart, it will keep me from violating you and sinning against you. If I allow your word to speak, it'll lead me and it'll guide me and it'll give me direction because your word has given me the ability to become everything you created me to be. Lord Jesus, I don't know who I'm speaking to tonight, but you do. I don't know who's felt they don't deserve to be in your house or enjoy your blessings. But I pray tonight revelation happens to somebody. I pray somebody tonight realizes they don't have to live in a pig pen anymore. They can go home no matter how far they wandered or strayed. If they'll just turn around, they'll discover you blazed a trail for them to get home on. Jesus, would you touch every heart, every life that's here tonight? In Jesus' name. Would you respond what you feel? Make this whole auditorium an altar right now. You don't have to move from where you're standing. Would you just respond? Maybe you need to tell Jesus that you're sorry you confused him with dad and dad was the wrong kind of example, but you're going to do everything in your power to see him the way he truly is, not the way life may have taught you. If you'll do that today, I can guarantee you, you'll you'll get past all those struggles and, and all those things that keep showing up on a regular basis, bringing conflict and chaos to your life. He's here. He's the greatest father in all the world. To the church that made him sick, he said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will hear my voice and let me in, I'll come in and sup with him. No matter how you disgust me, I'm still going to knock at your door. And if you'll just open the door and invite me in, we can have a supper meal where you can tell me about life. And I'll give you permission to unload all your cares and all all the issues of your life. You, You can tell me all about life and what life's done. And I give you permission at my table while I'm supping with you to to just share with me, rehearse with me what's going on through the day and, and how people may have hurt you or mistreated you. Whatever life has done, I'll listen. I, I'll, I'm the father who understands and cares. I, I, I'm the one who wants you to have the best life possible. That's what he wants for you today. Would you worship him? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I love you today. There's just none like you, Jesus.
There's none like you today, Jesus. I worship you, Jesus. I worship you, Jesus. I worship you. I worship you. I worship you. I worship you today. You're the greatest Father in all the world. Your love is from everlasting to everlasting. Your tender mercies are from generation to generation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for providing a remedy for my shortcomings and my mistakes. And thank you for loving me in spite of my failures and my shortcomings. I bless you today, Jesus. I bless you today. I challenge you over the next few days or weeks to let somebody see how great a dad you serve through your life. You're his ambassador. You're his emissary to this world. He's going to send you to another country to represent him. That's where we live. So let's show him how, show the world how great dad is. The Lord bless you. Greet one another in the lovely name of Jesus before you're gone today. In Jesus' name.